Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton, and BIV is once again seeking BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors. This is for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards. Go to BIV.com slash events. Nominations close July 30th, so get all the information you need on our website. A range of innovative, disrupted technology has emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency, also known as fintech, something we talk a lot about on the show. You can join us September 13th for BIV's fintech panel, where we'll discuss how these technologies can help small and medium-sized businesses, and how such businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information, head on over to BIV.com slash events. And today, we're going to talk a lot about the Indian economy. It's poised to overtake the UK, Germany, and more countries in the coming years. So amid this sense of uncertainty pervading global trade, should Canada be taking a deeper look at its own economic ties to India? HSBC's Stephen Cam, he joins us today to discuss the opportunities in India. And later on, PwC Canada's national mining leader, Liam Fitzgerald, will join us to explain the major growth that is afoot for the Canadian mining industry. But first, here's HSBC's Stephen Cam. It's the world's largest democracy and the world's fastest growing large economy right now. So is Canada really capitalizing on all the economic opportunities that India presents? With us today to break down the state of the Indian economy is Stephen Cam. He's a director and senior product specialist at Asian Equities at HSBC Global Asset Management in Hong Kong. Stephen, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. So are there maybe any misconceptions that people have right now about the Indian economy, where it's going, and what its growth stands to be going forward? Sure. Um, I think that uh, India perhaps is going through a bit of a rough patch, certainly in terms of both the equity and fixed income markets. Uh, they've gone through a bit of turmoil. Um, certainly, uh, I think within the context of the challenges that emerging markets have generally faced, uh, I suppose it hasn't been so bad, but I think investors may be um, perhaps losing sight a little bit of the longer-term growth story, which for India uh, is, is very, very strong. I think India is mentioned alongside uh, China, but certainly China gets a few more headlines. Um, and I think it's in, important to highlight that, uh, first and foremost, uh, in terms of the growth rate of India that's, been, that's being projected for the next few years, India is actually projected to grow even faster than, than the growth rate seen in China. So, I think it's certainly uh, a very interesting and attractive story that investors should be looking at. What would you say, Stephen, are some of the biggest challenges right now in this rough patch? And then follow that up with some of the bigger term, longer opportunities that exist in the Indian economy. Sure, sure. I think what's been troubling uh, investors in particular um, has been uh, the impact of higher oil prices on the Indian economy. Uh, India is a net um, uh, oil importer, and higher oil prices definitely has a negative impact, uh, both in terms of uh, consumer prices, CPI, uh, as well as the um, fiscal balance sheet. Uh, the current account deficit has started to move a little bit higher on the back of higher oil imports, uh, more expensive oil, I should say. 
But that's really been, I think, the main challenge. Uh, the underlying economy actually is doing very, very well, and the high-frequency indicators that we actually track uh, are pointing uh, to towards really an upward trajectory uh, and very much a recovery since last year where the economy did go through a little bit, not so much of a wobble, but uh, there were a few challenges last year. Uh, I think at the end of 2016, um, uh, Prime Minister Modi introduced uh, a demonetization exercise uh, to try to tackle some of the black economy in India, uh, took a lot of the uh, currency notes out of circulation and uh, in, in, in that effort. Um, and on the back of that, that was uh, a bit of a, there was a bit of a pause in the economy. Um, secondly, the GST reform was actually introduced, that being a, a unified tax structure in India. Um, I think longer term, medium, longer term, that was a very positive move. But uh, again, for 2017, it was a bit of a headwind for the economy. So we did actually see economic growth in 2017 last year uh, stall a little bit relative to previous years. We're still talking about uh, GDP growth in the region of 5.5%, uh, but for India, actually, that's quite slow. Uh, this year, what we're seeing is actually recovery, and, and certainly year on year, uh, things have started to accelerate. And that's actually been very encouraging for us as investors. Maybe just a, a point of my own personal interest, though, but I recall my, my baby brother was backpacking across India when they took the currency notes out of circulation, which was an interesting story for him to tell uh, when he got back home. But I'm just curious, what kind of inf uh, impact did that eventually have on the economy if we can look back on it about a year later now? Uh, well, certainly, uh, I think it's um, important to recognize that India, uh, emerging market, um, it's not really a cashless society by any means just yet. I think the demonetization exercise, to some extent, should encourage more use of digital payments. Uh, but at the moment, um, most of the economy operates uh, on, on a cash basis. Um, so essentially, taking 85% of the currency out of circulation had a very negative impact um, in the short term um, on economic growth, certainly, and on the lives of um, people day to day. Um, much of the economy is rural, and so without cash to transact, it was very difficult to really just run on a day to day basis. Um, obviously, that was just a temporary situation. Um, what happened was um, people had to essentially redeposit their old currency notes and get cash back, new currency notes. Uh, initially, of course, uh, not all the currencies was returned. Perhaps you put in uh, put into the banking system 100 rupee, but you'd only get 10 back. Uh, that, again, of course, was quite temporary, uh, but it did create a bit of disruption in the economy uh, and certainly in terms of rural life, uh, quite a bit of disruption. Lots of uh, big lineups in front of ATMs. Mm -hmm, no doubt. Yeah, I think we all saw the images of that. It was uh, impressive, scary. If like Tyler's brother, you're caught there in one of those lines. He, he was in a line for a long, long time. I do, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah. um, Stephen, if you were to line up, say, the biggest areas of need in India's economy with maybe the, the greatest strengths here in Canada when it comes to our expertise and our strongest sectors. Where do you think there's overlap? Where are the opportunities for our companies over there? I think there are a lot of opportunities, largely because India is really growing at such a fast pace. Um, perhaps I can go through uh, maybe some of the things I, I, I would want to highlight with respect to the overall growth story. Um, for a lot of listeners, this might be quite helpful. Now, the India economy, on its current growth rate of 6 to 7% um, annually, um, the India economy is actually expected to triple in size uh, to reach around $6 trillion U.S. trillion in terms of GDP uh, wow. over the next 10 years. 
and what we're actually anticipating, uh, again, on its current growth rate, uh, it should become the fourth largest economy ahead of the UK, France, Germany, uh, by as early as 2022. Uh, that's a very, very uh, fast pace of growth. What's driving a lot of this is really the fact that it, it's, um, it's a very young population. Uh, almost half of its population is actually under the age of 25. And India itself actually has 18%, 1-8% of the world's working age population. So it's, this is going to be a very big growth engine. And what drives the India economy is really consumption. Um, and what we're actually looking at is a situation where uh, you have a lot of families, a lot of households moving from a lower income level to a middle income level. Uh, and again, uh, through 2025, we're expecting the middle class to actually double in size. Uh, we're looking at 550 million people moving into the middle class. And that's essentially the size of the U.S., U.K., Germany, and France all combined. That, this is really where the opportunity lies. Uh, it, it's really very much a, a consumption story. Um, already, again, GDP growth is, is uh, very, very strong. Uh, we're looking at um, projected growth of around 7.5% for this year, uh, and we expect that to continue going forward. Now, some areas um, where Canadian companies can actually take advantage of, in fact, I think the relationship that India has with Canada is already quite strong. Um, obviously, we had um, uh, Canada's Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, come visit India in February. Uh, and I think overall, um, certainly it made news headlines. And during the course of his travel, uh, he met up with, I believe, the six uh, biggest um, uh, industry heads uh, while he was there to try to drum up more business. Now, actually, I think the opportunities for Canadian businesses uh, are twofold. Um, one, I guess, comes from the side of financial investors, and then the other side is, is really perhaps real companies. Um, perhaps I can tackle both. Now, already we've actually seen quite a bit of investment from Canadian investors, although it may not be widely known. Um, one of the biggest investors uh, in India is actually the pension plan of Quebec, uh, Casta Depot, um, and they have uh, within their $300 billion in assets uh, under management, they've actually invested about 1.5% already uh, into the Indian market. We're talking about a financial investment of around $4.5 billion uh, on behalf of um, pension schemes in Quebec. Uh, most recently, um, they've invested uh, an additional $600 million into a distressed assets fund. Uh, and this is something that is, I think, quite interesting and, and somewhat unique um, in India. Uh, obviously, it's an emerging market. The banking system is by no means perfect, and we're looking at uh, non-performing loans being very, very high. Uh, we're talking about around 12 to 12.5% of overall loans in the system. Uh, this is a, a big problem that uh, the Indian government is trying to tackle, and they have injected more capital into the banking system to try to help repair it. Uh, but as an opportunity set, we have many companies that are actually looking to buy distressed assets. Uh, and Casta Depot has actually tied up uh, with uh, Edelweiss uh, Asset Management um, to try to invest behind these distressed assets uh, to generate profitable returns uh, for their pension, uh, pension clients. So these are the types of opportunities that are, I think, unique to emerging markets, that being these distressed assets uh, that can be quite interesting for financial investors. Well, you brought up the Trudeau trip earlier, and 
here in Canada, I, I think that was kind of perceived to be a bit of a political disaster for him. But I, I do wonder how effective it was in India. What were the perceptions in India? And are there a lot of thoughts about maybe creating stronger ties between these two countries resulting from this trip that the prime minister made to India? I, I think on a global, from a global perspective, India is trying to raise its profile very much like what China is trying to do. Uh, so any trips, uh, any um, uh, opportunities, I should say, uh, to connect to the, to, to the broader global economy uh, are going to be taken uh, very well uh, by India. Ultimately, India is very much uh, still a domestically driven economy. Exports actually represent a very small portion of, uh, of the economy itself. Uh, but certainly, I think that India is looking to raise its profile uh, on the global scene. Um, again, uh, there certainly were quite a few uh, different uh, headlines uh, with, res- with respect to uh, the Prime Minister's visit. Uh, but I think from, the bit, uh, from a business perspective, what we looked at uh, was the fact that just on the back of the trip, um, I think agreements um, to the extent of, I think, a billion dollars worth of bilateral trade uh, were actually uh, penned uh, during the trip or on the back of the trip. And that's certainly very, very positive. The, the numbers that I've seen with regard to bilateral trade between the two countries um, I'm looking at uh, India being Canada's 11th largest trading partner, uh, but of course that still represents a very small number. Um, I think the, the relationship, the long-term relationship between India and Canada has been long-standing, um, and they would clearly look to, to increase that number, uh, and trips like these, this, uh, I think, would, would help towards that. Uh, Stephen, I, I feel like we've just scratched the surface here, and I'd love for you to return to the program once again and just give us uh, maybe even a deeper dive next time you're on the program. But uh, today, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for your time. That's Stephen Cam. He's Director and Senior Product Specialist at Asian Equities at HSBC Global Asset Management in Hong Kong. Canada's notoriously cyclical mining sector it looks to be on the upswing. This is according to PwC Canada's Mine 2018 report. We're seeing big boosts in exploration spending as well as new partnerships emerging between tech startups and Canada's top mining companies. And with us today to break down the current state of the mining industry, it is Liam Fitzgerald. He's the national mining leader at PwC Canada. Liam, great to have you on the show today. Good morning. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit, I mean, what is it that's driving enthusiasm right now for these exploration investments? And and can you also provide us maybe some numbers about what we're seeing from these big guys with regards to what they're investing now? Well, when you look at what's happening overall in the market, everything is starting to tick upwards. A lot of the health of the industries are being driven by uh, better commodity prices, particularly in the precious metals market. And when you have better commodity prices and more money flowing within the system, uh, the mining ecosystem, then you have more money to spend on exploration. So it's not really a one-off exploration spend, which is a standalone story. It's looking at the entire context of the global mining industry having a much better cycle, starting to hit the upswing. And with that, you're having the exploration spending starting to increase. But most of it is, when you look at the spending, though, it's still 60 to 70% dedicated to precious metals, particularly gold. There's not a lot of money being spent on the bulk commodities. So when you look at the cycle, it is it is a muted uh, recovery. I would expect if we would have a much stronger recovery if you saw more money being spent across the spectrum of metals. Right now, it is still 
more or less on the uh, on the precious metal side. Is there a cyclical pattern or history to perhaps seeing investment in precious metals and then following that would be investment across a broader range of commodities? No, not, not typically. Uh, when you look at the precious metals, a lot of it is driven by the Canadian market. So 30 to 32 percent of all exploration spending happens in Canada. 60% of that funding comes from flow-through shares. So when you look at flow-through share spending in Canada, it naturally leans towards the precious metals, particularly gold. Uh, so it, it, re- it is a relatively independent market for exploration compared to the broader exploration, such as, for example, copper, coal, metallic coal, for example, in British Columbia, uh, and then you look at iron ore, most of that is invested by the major corporations. So there is, there's not a correlation between the two. For the major corporations to spend more on exploration, I, I think they're looking for a couple more years of more robust results and more free cash flow before they start putting money into the ground. So it, it is two relatively independent sets of figures when you look at the data for exploration around the world. Although we are talking about exploration spending and investment right now, are the companies taking a step back to a certain degree when you look at a lot of the global uncertainty that's surrounding trade right at this moment? Or, or is that more of a short-term consideration that's going on right now? That's relatively short-term. So when you look at trade, it mostly affects the bulk commodities, whether it's metallic coal, whether it's uh, iron ore, and it's really a knock-on effect. So Iron ore itself isn't subject to the trade, um, the trade doubt that we have right now, whether it's between the U.S. and China or Canada and the U.S. So it's downstream when you look at things like aluminium and steel. Uh, so when you look at steel and aluminium, looking at bauxite, you're looking at iron ore. So there'll be a knock-on effect. So if something happens this year to restrict steel, for example, crossing borders, then that will have a downstream effect on iron ore. But that will take a couple more years to really take effect because a lot of the iron ore production is done by offtake agreement, for example, or long-term agreement. So to affect those long-term agreements, you need to have it take a few years to make its way through that cycle. So it's really downstream. So when you look at that, a lot of the major companies will be looking at that, looking at their contracts and trying to adjust themselves. And that's why you you won't see them immediately putting free cash flow into new projects until they get more confidence that the current economic environment is at least stable. What they want is stability. And once there's more stability and they have more certainty, then they'll start building new projects and putting new money into exploration. To that point, Liam, how much enthusiasm for investment are we seeing across other phases of a mine? So not just exploration, but say actual development. When you look at, for example, we have uh, our focus on British Columbia, there are some new mines coming online, particularly in copper and gold. So there are some new projects which are finally coming into commercial production, but you still don't see the big blockbuster projects, the two, three, four billion dollar projects being approved. So whether that's being hung up in permitting because it takes longer to get those projects approved or just no one's willing to spend that kind of money. So you still have the projects coming through, but most of the money is being made on existing projects and optimization of existing operations. You don't see a lot of new money or a lot of new projects coming online anytime soon because there's not enough confidence there for someone to be willing to put two or three or four billion dollars into a gold project, for example, or a copper project. So you don't. So it's also when you look at the statistics, the profit may be much more strong. The free cash flow is strong but the year-over-year capital expenditure is relatively flat, which shows that there's still a lot of caution in deploying new money into a project. 
One of the other interesting things that you guys highlight in the latest report is these technology partnerships that are emerging between these large mining companies as well as these technology startups. Tell us a little bit about why we're seeing a lot of interest just recently with regards to creating these partnerships. Well, what mining companies are trying to do is uh, optimize, and they realize that they can't uh, cost-cut their way to prosperity. So you can only do so much cost-cutting without looking at the way you operate. For example, they're looking at their exploration, and they're trying to look at virtual reality and trying to ensure that instead of doing a 1,000 drill holes to delineate a resource, can you do 10 drill holes and then use technology in order to map out where the resource might be? Or you've got operational excellence where you're trying to look at analytics, you're trying to look at automation in order to optimize your your operation to reduce costs, but also it's it's healthy um, element of health and safety coming through. So when you look at health and safety with automation, a good example is with Kirkland Lake. They're trying to build an underground mine fully automated that allows them to have less people underground and also has a higher health and safety factor compared to their peer group who still deploy people underground. Um, it's also a cheaper mine. If you have an automated battery-operated fleet underground, you have less venting, you have less need for constructing adits, and you also have a cheaper mine. So it's both looking at optimizing the mine as well as getting health and safety. But I think the thing that is we're on the crest of is analytics. When you have like likes of Goldcorp working with IBM, what they're trying to do is use technology to take data. Mines, mining companies have mountains of data. What they can't do is analyze it. Companies like IBM have programs like Watson who help analyze the data to help them predict. So it's predictive analytics. That's really what we're on the cusp of is where mining companies will go to see if they can even get more efficient, optimize their mine or bring mines into production quicker. I imagine the mountains of data, I'm sure there's a lot the mines collect and they need the power to be able to actually properly analyze it. What are some of the areas now where companies are gaining insights into what exactly that they couldn't before? What would they be looking to analyze and looking to sort of gain greater insight into? I think the cutting edge will be exploration and that's the next uh, adventure for mining companies. So in history is that it's not hard to put a 100 sensors on each truck and then figure out how those trucks operate to optimize them. Mm. I think the trick will be with data is your exploration data. So a lot of mining still is at the point of a drill bit, so to speak, where you're trying to drill holes, delineate a resource, and you're trying to drill as many holes as possible. What the next step will be is you have some data in respect of drilling. It gives you the resource. How do you reduce the amount of drilling you need to do to delineate that resource? And that's where true analytics will come into play. Because uh, right now, most, especially in the, the junior gold sector, it's still most of the money spent is on drilling. How do they look at the limited amount of cash available to them, which may be half of what it was 10 years ago, but get the same result to get a project up and running online and get to the preliminary economic assessment? How, how can you use drilling? So it's, it's an analytical play. Um, the question will be how do they access it? So it's easy for a major company like a Goldcorp to have enough money to access the analytic capabilities of IBM. How do you get the junior sector? Do they start to work with the seniors uh, more closely to get access to this analytical power? Or do they need to coerce themselves amongst banners like should PDAC do it? Help these companies get together to help collectively get better use of their data. Because individually it's going to be very difficult. 
If we go back a few months, back in February, I do recall, I think Ottawa was getting a little bit beaten up over the Canadian business uh, community just because we're expecting a lot of tax measures to be introduced to compete with what we saw in December from the United States. I am curious, though, how have American tax reform reforms impacted Canadian companies that have operations in the U.S. since that time? Well, what you're finding is that a lot of uh, U.S. projects, which five or six years ago wouldn't have been given a second thought, are now getting more interest. For example, there's a company called Nevada Copper in British Columbia, which has had new money deployed in order to do their expansion in the copper industry in, in the U.S. You also have a lot more interest in their coal operations. So a lot of there has been money flowing into the U.S., but most because of the tax measures where you have the tax rate dropping down to what is an OECD average, which makes the U.S. more attractive, but also on the regulatory front. You've got Canada introducing environmental legislation, uh, which is fairly arduous compared to what the U.S. is. So when you look at simple permitting uh, and the, the difficulty of permitting a project in Canada versus the U.S., you kind of have that double whammy of having an easier way to deploy money in a better commodity price environment with a higher after-tax return. And it also is probably easier to get a project permitted in the U.S. right now. When you look at the combination of those factors, U.S. mining, though it's not not exactly on a tear, it has um, got some signs of life just simply seeing that some companies like Nevada Copper are starting to get money to, in order to build out projects. Well, excellent. Liam, fascinating stuff going on in the mining sector across Canada, and I do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. You're welcome. That's Liam Fitzgerald. He's the National Mining Leader at PwC Canada. And that's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes over on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can find this current show and tell your friends to visit us. You can also find more business stories in print and online at BIV.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.